What if in 2024, you got a little bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a full year. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses are helping me learn real-life conversation skills in Spanish. It's getting so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, or speak to merchants. Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com SPP. That's right. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Chris Stemp here. We're bringing you a great one. Like, this is what it's all about. You're going to learn some things that you never knew about the thing you should know the most about, and that is your body. This week on the episode, we are interviewing Alex Bezaridis. And Alex is the author of the brand new book, Evolution Gone Wrong. The Curious Reasons Why Our Bodies Work or Don't. Really, this book is about all the reasons things fall apart as you age. And you'll notice I spend a good amount of time talking about that during this episode because as I approach 40, oh my gosh, okay, I'm not there yet. But as I approach it, I feel my body breaking down. And at times I wonder why, like, are we designed this way? Are we supposed to break and that's what Alex talks about. So Alex is a professor of biology at Lewis Clark State College in Lewiston, Idaho, where he teaches a wide range of classes from human anatomy and physiology to entomology. He earned degrees from Colorado State and Cornell and taught at a small college in Wisconsin for a few years before he moved back west to where he resides now. Kick back and enjoy this one. This is what it's about, learning new things, and having fun along the way. If you like it, share with somebody. You got to know people who want to know more about their body. Tell them about Smart People Podcast. And remember, you can support us at patreon.com slash smartpeoplepodcast. All right, let's get into our episode this week as we talk to Alex Bezarides about his new book, Evolution Gone Wrong. Enjoy. All right. So many things I have to get into, but I want to start here. I'm 38 years old. My body started falling apart at 35. Yeah. And for the first time in my life, I questioned what the hell is wrong with us? So in short, that's what your whole book's about. Kind of what the hell is wrong with us? I, that's exactly what happened to me. I didn't write this. I didn't start writing this book until I was 40. And I think it's no coincidence that that's about the time that I woke up one day 
and my back was kind of sore, and then maybe I sprained my ankle playing basketball. Instead of taking a week to recover, it took a month to recover. So there's just all these things that are funny about our body, and you, you don't think about them as much maybe when you're 12 years old, but I started digging into why our bodies kind of fail us in predictable ways, and that's the thesis of the book. And you have to, it turns out that you have to go a long way back to get those answers and you get into all this really fascinating biology that drives all the way back to hagfish in the ocean 400 million years ago and it was just really fun to put together is there a general theme of hey look aging is just a natural part of we have to die so that we don't overpopulate the world there's some general theme like that yeah i mean i tried to I mean, certainly as we get older, um, there's no question that as you build more mistakes into the DNA and you make wonky proteins and the body starts to fall apart. But I wanted to try and explore issues that happen that can happen to people at any time in their lives. So I, I led right off in the book with crooked teeth as the first chapter and why we have crooked teeth. And the second chapter is all about why our vision is is not as good as you might expect. And those are things that can happen to anybody. I mean, you look around and there's every 12 year old, it seems like on earth either is having wisdom teeth yanked out or is having, is having braces put on their teeth. And that's fascinating to me to just think, well, it's the most fundamental part of living is chewing food and having our you know teeth and, and they don't, then they don't fit in our mouths. Like, why is that? That's kind of the first question I started with. And I discovered the answers were these incredibly fascinating things. And it wasn't just thing, it wasn't just biology that happens to 80 year olds. Obviously it all gets way worse when you're 80, but it can all start to fall apart really early. And to me, that was really interesting. I think there's been so much written and there's even books out right now about how, what a miracle the human body is and how amazing it is and how all the physiology works. And, and that's all true. Like there's a whole other book to be written called evolution gone right or whatever, but I kind of liked the darker side of the coin. I thought that was more interesting and I wanted to explore that. Yeah, and, and I'm glad you bring that up. The other day, actually, so I just got back uh, five days ago from a golf trip where I played five rounds of golf in three days. <laughs> so it was about 25 hours of golf in, you know, 70 hours. I mean, it was That's incredible, awesome. right? It's exactly and, the kind of thing I would love to do. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? Yeah. And my body held up and I swear I said to it, I'm, I'm embarrassed admitting this online, but like, I was driving home and I get home and I said, you know what, body? I just want to say thanks. Like, thanks for getting me through that. And not yeah. only that, here's evolution gone right. The fact that, you know, swinging at a speed of however many, you know, and hitting this tiny little ball at the right spot so that it goes dead, da, 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 da. I mean, it is kind of incredible when I think about sports, the ability without thinking to do some ridiculous stuff. Yeah. Your golf story reminds me, and especially this time of year. When I was in graduate school, so the I went to Cornell and the golf course was nice and pretty spendy. So we couldn't afford it. Like they didn't give you much of a cut. But what they did was give you a day pass. So I had a buddy. He actually comes up in the book. He's the guy that blew out his uh, ACL and never had it repaired. If you remember from the knee chapter, yeah. that guy, we would on the solstice, we'd play once a year and we'd go out on the solstice and we'd get the day pass and we would play 72 holes on that day. And it would... So, you know, we're in our sort of mid twenties and it would basically, I mean, the first couple rounds, the first round's really fun. The second round, you're still kind of flowing. And then it's just a grind after that as the body starts to just give up. Yeah. But you're right. It's incredible that you can even get out to that, you know, 72nd hole of golf and even begin to swing a club and not make a 14 on the hole. Well, and actually let's go into this. I wanted to start with a different area. We'll get there. Childbirth. Okay. Like what yeah. the hell is going on there? But I want to, let's tackle, go straight to the low back because that's my, that's my ailment. It was funny on this golf trip, we used to do this. So about the last time I did it was about six years ago. And then we had kids and life ends, but, um, <laughs> and, and so the last time I played this much golf was about six years ago and it wasn't a problem. I remember it like it was yesterday. We would you know, drink half the day or the whole day. And we'd go play two, three rounds, whatever. And we'd wake up and then we'd go home and it's like nothing happened. This was completely different. It was like hydrate, sunscreen, stretch, and barely survive. What is it about our low backs or back specifically for an animal that walks upright can barely last us to like 30? Yeah, you have these so when, when we popped up to upright, when, when you transitioned from life in the trees to life on the ground, you take this spine that was kind of C-shaped 
and pretty rigid and it had to become flexible and curvy and it has these these curves built into it that are absolutely requisite for being able to balance up and walk on two feet. There's a lower curve, the lumbar curvature, that sort of moves the center of gravity over the hips and that helps with balance a ton. There's an upper curvature, um, cervical curvature that sort of shifts the head over the trunk of the body so that you're not having all this huge strain on your neck and you can't have an animal walk upright without those curves. Little babies are born without those curves and as they develop, um, then they, you know, once those curves develop, then they start to toddle. And once the muscles, you know, begin to support them, then they can walk around. And effectively what happens as we get older, you have to have those curves in the right shape or, or that's when discs can start to sort of, I don't like the word slip, but they can kind of ooze out of place and press on nerves. And that's what causes pain. And what keeps those curves in place is a strong core. And it's so much easier to keep your core strong when you're 25 years old as opposed to when you're 35, 45, 55 years old. And as soon as that core strength starts to slip just a little bit, those curves get a little bit off and pain ensues. I feel like we all just, I was telling my wife the other day, I feel like that society should be set up so that when you're 20 years old, like you work 50 hours a week. And when you're 30 years old, you work 40 hours a week. And when you're 50 years old, you work 30, so on and so forth. So that you can take that extra time and just put it into your body because there's just not enough hours in the day. I feel like it's all just, I need all this time just for maintenance, you know, just to like, just to keep it all together. And if you're working full time and like you said, you're raising kids, you got all these other things, this is not time to to keep the body where it needs to be and and things fall apart. I, I'm a big sports fan. I'm watching the NBA playoffs and, you know, there's all these guys that like Chris Paul's like 36 years old and I was reading an, an interview with him and he was talking about that, about all his time now is just spent like doing yoga and floor rollers and like <laughs> ice baths and all this stuff that when he was 22, he didn't have to do any of that. And he just has to spend his whole life just sort of getting ready for the next game as soon as the one game ends. I'm so glad you said that. I was listening to, there's this doctor, Peter Atia, and I really like what he has to say on a lot of things. I was listening to him talking about, you know, how can we maximize our human body? Uh, He talks about his Olympic game is being a a strong hundred year old. He's like, how can we maximize that and and reach that Olympic kind of sport uh, with 12 hours a week? And I was like, okay. 12 hours a week. Theoretically, I should be able to do that. So I started very simply with stretching every morning. It takes me 25 minutes <laughs> to get through a pretty easy stretch routine. And I was like, right. wait a second. Right. Like, there goes three and a half hours. That's about all I got, right? Because then the kids and then it's work and then it's bedtime well, and then sure. it's bath time and then it's yeah. like all these things. I just, to your point, I feel like the older you get, it's just maintenance mode. And if yeah. somebody's 20 listening to right now, right now to this, they're going to be like, I'm turning this off because you know all our geezers, but I'm telling you, it jumps on you. It's coming. It's coming. Yeah. So I didn't know this. I, I want to talk about this idea of core strength and the curves because I've gone to chiropractors and PTs and all this stuff, and they talk about core strength and it's boring, but I try and do it. But I didn't know why. I just, it keeps your stuff in order. How does core strength keep the curve specifically? I was unaware of that. Yeah, so the, the way that sort of drove home for me was actually in the cadaver lab. So we, I teach a human dissection class occasionally, and I, we sort of rotate different professors through it. And when you, so one of the last things we do in that lab is a dissection of the spine, because you sort of have to destroy the back muscles to get to it. But that in and of itself is such a lesson because you see all these different muscles, all the lats and the traps and all the deeper muscles under that, the, the spinalis and all these muscles that that attach to the vertebrae. And all those back muscles are holding and maintaining the shape. And even the abdominal muscles sort of reaching around from the front are attaching to the bones that that are the shape of the spine. And those muscles... They just naturally weaken over age, just like all the rest of the muscles do. And you have to put in extra time. And so I think, you know, every 40 year old should be, should be waking up and, and getting out of bed and doing planks as soon as they, as soon as they hit the floor. (laughs) I never thought about that. Right. So I'm assuming, right. That's also why you want to balance the muscle strength. My guess is maybe certain abdominals are pulling that lumbar forward while others are keeping it laterally in position. And so if you just did say crunches, you might over pull one way. Is that I think that, I think that's well put. Yeah, it's exactly why you have to sort of reach good exercise balance because you're right. I mean, you, you have to be careful about it because 
Otherwise, you can suffer an acute injury and trying to prevent the sort of chronic injuries, you can suffer an acute injury that puts you down the down the path of back pain. So, yeah, you have to, you're right that you have to be smart and balanced about it. And also, I think a really a, a mistake that a lot of people make is they don't ease into it enough. They, they start to get some pain and then they just go a little too hard right away. And the same thing happens with running. You know, people will, oh, I'm going to start running. And they, and you know, your feet just, you can't just go from like not running to just a ton of running right away. Like your feet and your, your joints are just, they're not going to be able to take it. So I, I do think sort of easing in and being patient with it is also really critical. I know a lot of your book talks about the historical or evolutionary process of it all. And I, I want to spend some time focusing on that because... I think people know a little bit more about their modern day bodies because we live in them, but how we got here, are we still evolving like on a minute by minute or day by day basis? Like, do you think a uh, hundred, a thousand, a million, whatever years from now, they won't have back pain because we'll have been walking upright for so long, it will have evolved to not be an issue. I think the way that natural selection is occurring in humans currently does not put nearly the emphasis on the physical nature of the body that it once did. It's just, it's just the nature of the modern life. So I think for the most part, unless you want to just go super, you know, dystopian post-apocalyptic and get us back to a world where like, it really matters if I can run down an animal and eat it for dinner, I think we're largely stuck with these problems from an evolutionary perspective. Um, there are things that change over time. I talk in the tooth chapter about how teeth are sh shrinking over time and, and eventually they might catch up to the, to the jaw. Um, but then that gets slowed down by orthodontics. And it, I mean, having teeth that don't really fit in our mouth is not something that keeps people from surviving for the most part or finding a mate. So what we are getting really good at is slapping band-aids on these problems. And the 21st century band-aids that we're going to be able to slap on them, I think, are almost even unfathomable what they're going to be able to do in 50 years with gene editing technology, with stem cell, stem cell research. Like, I think it, the way that we'll be able to solve these problems, I, I think, is going, to be, is going to make many of them moot. But the body moving forward, I think, is I don't see them going away anytime soon. <laughs> It's a good point. I mean, if I think about that, if I just looked at the last 50 years, you would actually say we might devolve because now we just have to sit as opposed to work and yeah. et cetera, et cetera. And I think that in, in terms of our physical body, I think there's a lot of truth to that. Uh, evolution is absolutely, to, to put a short answer to your question, evolution is absolutely still occurring to the human body. I think it's just occurring in different ways where we're selecting for more behavioral traits, we're selecting for more personality driven things. So the brain, you know, is, is certainly being pushed in directions that it's maybe never been pushed be before. But I think the the poor physical body is kind of getting left behind and, and, and we have to deal with the consequences of that. Yeah. Wow. That is an interesting thing. You know, those aliens with the big heads and the tiny bodies. That's what it makes me think of. Right. We are going to over index for intelligence and personality because that's really what matters most in the last 50, 60 years. And then you can't give birth to the thing, which is kind of the whole other problem as a natural segue there into the, you know, the, the troubles of birth. Let's get into that. Okay. Cause <laughs> I got another funny story here. So I've got two kids, six year old and three year old. My first son, when my wife was pregnant and, and we were getting ready, we were like, you know what? I'm a big believer in nature and yeah. health and all that. We didn't do any of these birthing classes. We didn't have a doula. We didn't go to yeah. Lamaze. We did none of that, yeah. right? So much so that when we get into the, the, she starts having contractions and it was early. It was like five weeks early. We go to the doctor and they do their thing and they put her in the bed. And like an hour later, a doctor comes in and I said, are we having a baby? Like what is going on? And they're like, of course you're having a baby. What's wrong with you? That's how clueless we were, right? And um, because he was born early and my wife weighs about 115 pounds soaking wet, he was a tiny little baby, but everything was healthy. And I was like, you know what? That's how it's supposed to work. Like, I feel like the baby knew my wife's size. Okay. I, like, I know that's not true. I feel like where this is the, the second kids where this is going to all get turned on its head. I have a feeling. <laughs> well, similar process with the second, but the, the point of it all is, is this, I did not realize how traumatizing all that stuff is. Another example was my second kid was born. He swallowed something when he was in the womb oh. and like, you know, like they just suctioned it out and he was fine. But without modern day medicine, he'd be, he'd probably be dead. And then I heard this stat that like 
50% of kids died before the age of one for the longest time or something nuts. Yeah. Tell me all about childbirth. What is, why is it such a train wreck? Shouldn't it just be a well-oiled machine? Yeah, it's just, for me, it's just the perfect storm where all these issues come together. So the first one you have to do is you have to go all the way back to that transition to bipedalism. There's this really, really great paleoanthropologist at Dartmouth named Jeremy De Silva, just wrote a book called First Steps. I always tell people if they like the sort of middle section of my book about musculoskeletal issues, go, ahead, go read First Steps. It's really, really good, accessible, fun, like great scientific writing. And he's done these studies that show that like when that transition happened, even before the brain gets huge, um, that, that birth became a more difficult process, that the birth canal became tattered just by shifting the body, just shifting the animal up onto two feet changes the shape of the birth canal. And it became a tighter fit even before the brain swells up in size. So that's four or five million years ago. Now you roll forward and you triple the size of the brain in the ensuing four to five million years, which is a big deal. It goes from you know something like this to something like this. And so wow. now you have a birth canal that's already tight and you triple the size of the brain and it just makes for this situation that is just all nearly untenable. And then the, the last piece of it is that now you have women that are able to, from a nutrition perspective, feed their bodies and feed their baby in a way that has almost never been, you know, we've never been at this point in, in human history where you have access to all, you know, to as basically as many calories and, and even as good nutrition as you want. You can grow so much bigger babies than we've ever grown that you, you add those three things together and, and sometimes the kid just flat can't come out. And, you know, the there are hospitals where the C-section rates are higher than they should be because doctors are kind of overscheduling their lives. But there are some children that, that flat cannot come out the, the vaginal way and they have to come out via C-section. And now a quick break for one of this week's sponsors. This week's episode is brought to you by Felix Gray, the blue light glasses that started it all. Five years ago, Felix Gray realized our eyes weren't meant to look at screens all day and designed glasses to make daily screen time more comfortable and the workday more productive. Now more than ever, Americans are spending more time on computers, phones, tablets, gaming devices, and so many other sources of blue light. Felix Gray glasses are not like other blue light lenses. Felix Gray lenses filter 15 times more blue light that can make screen time tough on eyes and disruptive to sleep. Felix Gray offer classic frame styles made from acetate and hand-finished for a durable, lightweight, and really comfortable pair of glasses. Non-prescription and prescription available. Check them out now, felixgrayglasses.com smart. If you can feel your screen time, or if you're not sure if blue light glasses are right for you, start with the best in blue light. Try Felix Gray. With their 30-day money-back guarantee, there's nothing to lose but eye strain. Listen, you've been there, I've been there, staring at either my laptop for too long or my cell phone when you start getting sore, tired, or itchy, watery eyes, or maybe you start getting a headache. If you've experienced any of that, you need to check out Felix Gray. Get yourself a pair of glasses made for the 21st century and designed for modern, hardworking eyes. You have nothing to lose except maybe eye strain. Go to felixgrayglasses.com smart for the best blue light glasses on the market. That's F-E-L-I-X-G-R-A-Y glasses.com slash smart. Free shipping, free returns, free exchanges. FelixGrayGlasses.com slash smart. And now back to the episode. Did you look at all about the impact of science and technology at this idea of playing God? You've all know Harari. We interviewed him, and I, I love the his books. And the last one he wrote, well, the last one that I read was basically called Human God. And he kind of convinced me that like we are essentially what we deem gods because we have the ability to create life and all these things. As you talk about these things, all things that I've experienced, I was C-section, I had braces, I've had LASIK, I am a function of modern day science. But is it making life too easy? And is that going to be a problem? What I, when, when, you, when I think about that, what, the first thing that comes to mind is, is this, this new technology that, that has been harnessed, this CRISPR technology of gene editing, and how it's going to be so important for the, the legal side of it to 
to catch up to the biology because the biology just took off. You know, when they discovered it wasn't something that humans invented, this, this ability to go in and, and change the genetic code. It's something that, that bacteria do all the time in their sort of never-ending battle with, with viruses. This is just something that E. coli and other bacteria have always done. But Jennifer Doudna and her group figured out how to sort of translate that to human cells and to, to eukaryotic, to, to the R types of cells. And so the biology took off. And now we're going to need laws to, to match that. And I feel like the laws always move you know, that piece of it seems like it moves sort of glacially, slowly. And it's scary because it's a pretty cheap technology. It's a pretty easy technology to implement in labs. And, and if we don't get ahead of it, there are going to be people that are that are designing babies and doing CRISPR technology in their garages in, you know, in the 21st century. And that's a piece that's, to me, it's a, it, it always stresses to me the importance of being an educator and getting my students to have just a basic understanding of, of molecular and cellular biology because someday some of them are going to go on and serve in office. And if they have just a basic understanding of biology, I feel better about them making those decisions about what we allow and what we don't allow. But we're at this, I feel like we're at this tipping point where even even the creators, even the, the, the ones that sort of figured this out have said, we might need to hit pause here, people, and let the sort of legal ramifications and the moral and ethical ramifications of this make sure we understand those before we take the next steps. There's going to be amazing things that come out of it. We're going to be able to we're going to be able to deal with with you know autoimmune disorders and brain disorders and spinal cord injuries and, and all these things that that we've never had solutions for. But at the same time, you you, you don't want to you know go down that path of of going too far in terms of designing children. So, yeah, it makes me think a little bit about social media, just that Facebook came out when I was in college. And uh, I remember everybody, the, the vision of Zuckerberg and all this, right? It was like a college thing was kind of cool. And it was kind of let's just grow at all costs. And I think really the past couple of years, the negative implications. And what that's kind of putting the cart before the horse. I was actually just thinking, I read about. Lake Mead, where the Hoover Dam is, it's at like its lowest ever. And yeah. it's, it's just, it's going back in around 1900s when they were planning, they said, we are using more water than this natural resource can hold. And the politicians, because they wanted to get elected, they said, that's okay. Let's do it. We'll deal with it later. And we're dealing with it now. So it's just this lesson that humans, I don't think learn. Right. Yeah. I, we, we're just incredibly myopic. It just, you know, wh whatever serves us in that moment is, and yeah, as someone that lives in the West and the West is always drying out and drought. I mean, it's been 117 degrees in my hometown this, this week. It just is at some point you have to wake up and start to think about, you know, what you want things to look like in a hundred, 200, 300, a thousand years. But as you say it, I'm, I remember one of the first interviews we did is this guy, his name's Aubrey de Grey, and he believes in trying to live forever. And the obvious question, and I asked him is, well, if we live forever, don't we deal with overcrowding and all this? And he said, let me flip that question. You've got parents or kids or whatever. Do you want them to die, especially if it's a preventable disease? And that was, that was it. I was like, not anytime soon. It's easy to say, hey, this is unnatural, unless you're the person who needs the fix, the right. cure, the t science technology. Yeah, and where, where I think that's going in the 21st century, I think the, I think the neck down, I think we're going to be able to keep that. I mean, you're not, you're not going to be 20 years old running around, but you're going to be able to keep that in pretty tip-top shape. But unless you solve this problem and the, yeah. the way that that starts to accumulate errors and accumulate problems, you're not going to want to live to be 120, like you're going to be able to physically live to be, you know, 120 or 130 or whatever happens in this 21st century. But until we solve the issues of the brain aging and what that does, nobody's going to want to live to be that age. So that, that to me is the piece that, that is a much harder nut to crack. I mean, the rest of it, we have a pretty solid understanding of how a heart works and a liver works and kidneys work and all these things, which is why we're able to repair them to such a degree. We don't really even understand how the brain works when it's working normally. Yeah, <laughs> you know, good you remember, point. You remember when, when you and I were kids, there was this whole like, oh, this is the decade of the brain. I, I, don't, I don't even remember which decade was supposed to be the decade of the brain. Everyone. It was just, it was just so, so much hubris to think, oh, we'll just, we'll just knock it out in the 90s. We'll just figure it out. And then we'll just have that done. And then we can move on. But, you know, the, the brain is still just such a mystery in, in, in so many ways that... 
that until you understand how it works under normal conditions, you can't really begin to understand how it works when it goes off the rails. And that's, to me, that's a huge piece of, of the aging story. So I want to get into a couple of specifics in your book. One, you've mentioned a few times, right, the teeth. And it's embarrassing to admit, but like I had some jacked up teeth before <laughs> braces. Right. So I, I've always wondered a couple of things. One is, is that an issue or is it purely aesthetic that we fix them? And then two is, would it even matter if we didn't fix them? Yeah, I think, I mean, it depends on where you live. If you live somewhere where you have easy access to, to foods that aren't very difficult to chew and you have access to antibiotics so that if, you know, something happens in your mouth and you need to have a tooth out, you can, you know, you're not going to get an infection and die, then yeah, not that big a deal. Yeah, you can certainly survive on, on, on softer foods and not having to chew through much if, you're, if your teeth are all wonky, which is again why I think for the most part we're going to be stuck with them. But you don't have to roll the clock back that far to where the point to, you know, to where it was a big deal to not have your teeth fit well in your mouth. And that's why until this really recent time in human history, the mouth and jaw were really evolving and evolving, you know, relatively quickly for a physical structure. And you see teeth shrinking over time because it, because it was an absolute chore for people that had, that had, you know, this, this tooth jaw mismatch and it would have made life very, very difficult. And that's the only reason that evolution would continue to sort of push forward there and change the structures if it was really difficult for some people and caused them to not be able to survive or reproduce. So the tooth yeah. jaw, it's a, it's a, it's a fascinating story. There's so much to it. What I love about the tooth jaw mismatch story is that there are big pieces of it that are not anatomical and not biological. Like you, you have to understand the the how humans started to to use fire to to process their food and that made it so that we didn't need a stronger jaw how they started to use cut you know started to use metal and and cutlery to to cut up their food and even going further back to stone tools to cut meat apart and and all these things all these factors came together to make it so that we didn't need a large jaw anymore. And once we didn't need a large jaw it it started to acquire mistakes and shrink over time and the teeth just didn't kind of follow right along in suit. And so you ended up with this smaller jaw with still full of giant teeth that were good for grinding away on, on hard foods. So if we were to look at maybe our closest evolutionary thing, right? Yeah, Which yeah. I'm assuming is what, like orangutans or I mean, yeah, chimps yeah, or something? Yeah, I mean, chimpanzees are the closest living relative, certainly. And I always stress, and I start this in the book, like we're not descended from them. Just, yes. we, we, we both split off from another common ancestor Anywhere between, you know, the number that's thrown around the most is sort of in the six million year ago range. So let's look at them. Let's look at chimps. Do they have teeth issues or do they have birth issues? Or are we unique because of our ability to change our biology from a, a science and technology perspective? What I think makes us unique is the the recent dramatic transitions that our body has gone through. So many other animals just sort of have hit on their evolutionary path and sort of stayed on that path. Like I, I, I like to think about, I, I, I think about sharks a lot in this context. Like you look at a shark. I was at an, I was at an aquarium just the other day down in Puerto Vallarta that had some sharks, and I'm looking at those guys swimming around, and the shark, it's just like the thing just looks exactly like what I imagine it looked like 400 million years ago. The shark's just doing its shark thing, and because of that, it is just perfectly adapted to its environment. Now, you know, it, unlucky for that one, it, it ended up in an aquarium, but you know what I mean? Like the sharks sort of out in the ocean doing their thing. Whereas humans, we were just kind of cruising along with all the other primates and the other great apes. And then the hominid line made this dramatic change going from trees down to ground. And that's that's a huge deal. And that is the root of many of our problems. It is, it is why our feet suffer when we walk around. It is why back pain, you know, it is, it is the primary reason why back pain is a problem. And then, so you take that and then along that path, you then have this huge increase in brain size, which is another huge physical transformation. And that changes our lifestyle again dramatically just the way that we gather food the way that we the way that we do everything to me those those are the roots of the problems like these these huge transitions that we've gone through and that we just haven't had that much time 
for our bodies to get used to them. And that's that to me is is pretty unique. There aren't a lot of other animals that I can think of that that have sort of done that in recent times. When you were talking about sharks, I think about crocodiles. Yeah. Like I was watching a video and I mean, it's just this perfect thing that like can live for basically ever. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's just a dinosaur. And yeah. I was thinking about that when you were talking about teeth because I wanted to ask you going back to when when teeth were a problem, what did that look like? Because I think that's one of the coolest things you talk about is we lose sight of that. Like I said, we're in this, anybody alive today is in this era where they've had access to, for the most part, to dentistry that's pretty good. What did it look like before modern day dentistry and yeah. how did it impact their lives, ability to live, reproduce, et cetera? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think with teeth, it's a good point to sort of stop and stress that that all of these issues are a blend of nature and nurture. So it's not just that we're sort of set up for failure with our teeth. It's that you you take that tooth jaw mismatch and then you double down on the problem by by never sort of developing a jaw as a small child by chewing and, and, and working through it enough, you know, by not working the jaw enough. And so the I think the worst part period of time for teeth was probably in that in that period of time where you didn't have modern orthodontics and you didn't have the ways to sort of solve these problems. But at the same time, we were still sort of babying our kids along by cutting up all their little food and giving them you know, softer things to eat. And once the agricultural revolution comes along, you can just have a bowl of mush for, for breakfast. And <laughs> at that point, that kid is not developing his jaw. It doesn't get as big and strong. Their teeth don't fit in their mouths. And because it's you know a few thousand years ago, they can't just run to the orthodontist and get braces and have their wisdom teeth pulled out. So there had to be a period of time there sort of between when we went to mushy foods and now that had to be sort of the worst period of time for, for the human jaw. Now, you know, our band-aids, like I said, are getting pretty good. Did you look at all at, at what the actual stressors or impacts were? So for example, I don't know what it's like to have wisdom teeth because I got them right. pulled out. I don't know what it's like to live with a tooth jaw mismatch because even though I would have had one, I didn't no. have to. So what is it? What's the problem look like? I mean, for me, like, so it's, it's anecdotal, but I, mine all shifted around as an adult. So like my teeth were all fitting pretty and pretty good. And I went to college and then my wisdom tooth erupted in wisdom teeth erupted in college. And then all of a sudden, like my incisors, the two, you know, the teeth right in front, which had been nice and lined up and all perfect, they slowly started <laughs> to shift. And it got to the point over time that like one was started starting to overlap the other one. And as my dentist put it, like I, I reached the point where I couldn't pull the piece of lettuce out of a ham sandwich. Like my, my bite, mm. it started to affect my actual bite and it made it so that it was more difficult for me to chew. So, you know, getting into my forties, I finally, he finally talked, I'm pretty stubborn about those kinds of things. I was like, no, nah, I'm going to keep all 32 of my teeth. I might need those someday. And he, he finally convinced me that it was time that if I didn't have them out now, it was going to be really difficult to have them out down the line. So I've had, I had one removed and then a couple years later I had two removed. And actually in a month I'm having the last one removed and, okay. and then I'll be back down to 28 teeth. And then I, and then, I mean, I got to go through the whole ringer when I was in my forties then, and then I had braces for a couple of years to straighten them all out. And, you know, so I, I got to live like the middle, the middle school years. I just didn't do it till I was like 42. <laughs> but yeah, messing with, I never thought about that. Messing with the bite, therefore your inability to process yeah. food. Yeah. And if it's a long time ago where you can't just decide, okay, like for me, I just had a cavity, right? And it hurt. So, okay, maybe I'll have a smoothie or something like that. When <laughs> right. You, when you don't have that option. Not an option, yeah. And, and it's like, you either chew this meat or you die. Yeah, you're having- I an, could see that being an issue. You're having an antelope and tuber again for dinner. And, right. you know, <laughs> and that's a pretty hard thing to get through, I imagine. Yeah. Let's move on to another one. What's up with the ACL here? Seems a little too fragile for an animal that's whole job was for the longest time to walk. <laughs> yeah. That our that our ligaments that support those things don't stay stable. Yeah, the one that really gets me is the is looking at the foot. And we when I when we study the foot in class, and I make the the students learn every bone in the foot and all the different parts and everything. You look at the foot, and it's just this thing that it's clearly better off as a structure that would be good for, for gripping and grasping and holding on to things. It's got all this, you know, it's got all this inherent flexibility that the hands have. Now it's spent, you know, a fair amount of time on the ground now, so it's lost some of that. But from a structural standpoint, 
It just looks like it's made to do a different job than the job that we ask it to do. And you take that poor foot and then you, you know, that was great in the trees and the animals could use it to, you know, basically like another set of hands. And you take the thing and all of a sudden you put it on the ground. And it's like, all right, now go walk on it for, a, you know, for a while. And, and it just, it just falls apart as a consequence. It's, it's, it's got way too many bones down there next, next to the ground. And if you, if you look at animals that have been on the ground a lot longer than we have, all of the bones and all the weight sort of shifts up higher in the leg so that what's actually pounding on the ground, I mean, you take an ungulate, the only thing that's pounding on the ground is literally the nail. Like they just have a hard, single structure that contacts the ground. There's nothing to shift out of the place and they can you know, walk all the way across a, a continent <laughs> as a result. But our poor foot has all these pieces in there for flexibility and, and you make it take a pounding and then, you know, ligaments shift and you get plantar fasciitis and you get sprained ankles and you get all these terrible things that happen because it's, you know, we're asking it to do a job that it's not really set up well to do. And again, if you took and gave us old school selective pressures, yes, that's the kind of thing that would absolutely work itself out over five, 10, 20 million years or something, we'd, we'd end up with, with much you know, tighter feet that worked a lot better. But how many of us are, are surviving based on our ability to, to run around these days? Not very many. And now a quick break for one of this week's sponsors. This week's episode is brought to you by LinkedIn Jobs. Today, many small business owners are busier than ever. Because they are focused on managing and growing their business, they can't always spend the time they wish they could on recruiting. That's why LinkedIn Jobs has made it easier to find and hire the best candidates for free. Personally, I've made some of my best professional connections on LinkedIn. With access to the best talent and the skills that you're looking for, LinkedIn Jobs can surely help you find the candidates you need. Get started by posting your job for free to reach LinkedIn's network of 740 million professionals. Fill out targeted screening questions to get your role in front of the most qualified candidates with the experience, skills, and motivation you need. Then use simple tools to filter and prioritize the top candidates you'd like to interview. LinkedIn Jobs will help you hire the right person for your role. Did you know every week, nearly 40 million job seekers visit LinkedIn? Post your first job for free at linkedin.com smart. That's linkedin.com smart smart to post your first job for free terms and conditions apply and now back to the episode the common theme that i can't get out of my head as we're talking about this is modern day humans we come out of the trees we make a bunch of these big leaps that leave us kind of battered but all at the correct ultimate end which is to be the highest on the food chain to be the the apex predator. So like we come out of the trees, our bodies can't really handle it, but what it allows us to do, I'm assuming, right, is reach more food sources and more natural resources so that can feed our brain which we didn't know but maybe inherently knew that that's going to be the thing that puts us at the top. So it's almost like the means to the ends was worth it because if we can be smart enough, we can solve all the problems we kind of jumped past. Yeah, you can. What that, do you think about that? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think the brain trumps to so far to this point. <laughs> right. The brain, right. the brain allows us to trump all these problems. And and something you said, I think is, I think about that transition a lot, and and so sort of compare it to modern human society. And we talked earlier in the conversation about how humans don't really we're pretty bad at at changing unless we have to. And I think that was the same way four or five million years ago. Like hominids didn't just like crawl, you know, come out of the trees because they're like, oh, let's go try something different. You know, they definitely, whatever was happening, it wasn't working, you know, and the the leading candidate is that there was, there was significant climate change happening at at the time. And the, the environment changed, the food availability changed, and it was a matter of you're going to die if you stay in the trees. And there is food available in this other way and you have to go down and and try and scrap out a living that way and you just just have to sort of wonder when when i see 120 degree temperatures happen i mean for crying out loud it was 100 i know it was 115 in portland the other day like my folks live in portland it's just you you kind of have to wonder if we're we're going to come upon another moment where where because right now and for my whole lifetime it's sort of felt like well 
we could choose to change right now, you know, and, but people are terrible at that. They don't, they don't, they don't make these changes to their lifestyles by, by choice. And it, it sort of feels like we're starting to enter a new moment where the choice may be gone, where it's yeah. going to be, well, we will just have to change or there are going to be huge, huge consequences. And that sort of feels like it's all coming full circle because I, I imagine that's what happened five million years ago that, have, that drove some, some ancestors out of the trees. That's a great way to think about it because I feel the same to not notice what's going on would be crazy. I mean, just everything with the climate. So I wonder if, as we're talking about this, do you think that humans are uniquely designed to adapt because of all of the large leaps we've taken in comparison to most other animals who, due to their brain, I would think, haven't taken those leaps? Yeah, I think if the problem can be solved by thinking your way through it, <laughs> we're then then we're well situated to, to get through it, you know, but you, know, you take, and I think the coronavirus is a good example of that in the last 18 months, you take this virus that, that you know, had a chance to sort of just rampage its way through earth. And it, and it was something that we could sort of put our heads to and, and figure out as a, as a society, how to, how to get through it. And, and because of, you know, incredible scientists, we've run up to a vaccine in like the shortest amount of time in the history of the world. But with that said, it's not that many tweaks to that virus before you end up with something that, that we won't, wouldn't be able to do that to. So some of that was just was also just blind luck and, and that we were yeah. able to, to design a vaccine for this particular virus. So to me, it depends on the problem that gets, that, that, you know, gets presented to us. Um, some of them, I think, yes, we, we, because of our brains, I, I think we'll be able to push our way through problems in a, in a unique way. But I also think that we create problems to a unique degree. So if, if I'm just a betting man and you're asking me like, who's more likely to be around in a hundred million years, like sharks, cockroaches, or humans, my, I mean, my money's kind of on the sharks and the cockroaches, but <laughs> yeah, but they have a, they have a pretty, a they, have, they have a pretty solid proven track record. <laughs> right. But that's a terrifying thought for a lot of reasons. I mean, why? In, in the context of your book, do you think it's just that they have evolved more right and we have evolved more wrong? I, I mean, they've just done it longer and for one specific purpose of survival. Yeah, I think they're more perfectly adapted to their environment um, because mm. they haven't, humans just pushed the envelope in every conceivable way. And by, by undergoing all of this dramatic change that we've undergone, we've sort of put ourselves in a pretty vulnerable position where we're, you know, we've, we've lost all our hair. We've become kind of physically wimps and, yeah. and we've, we've made it such that when exposed to the true natural environment, it can be very difficult on humans now. And, and, and no other animal effectively has, has gone down that path. And it's, it's a very comfortable path. I mean, it makes for a really nice life, but it's also probably a, a dangerous path evolutionarily because at some point when the resources run out or when things when push comes to shove that animal that just has been sort of cruising along doing its thing and can still fit very well in its natural environment is likely going to survive what is your favorite or what was your favorite discovery about evolution yeah. gone wrong as yeah. you were going through this book for me my the my favorite chapter that i wrote was the menstruation chapter um and, and the reason for it is I just like, I just like learning new things. The whole point of this project for me before it even became a book was just like, I sort of felt like I was in a little bit of a rut. I've been teaching for quite a while and I, I just wanted, I needed something new to do, you know? And, and so I, I started on this idea and I got to that chapter and it was a really busy semester for me. I was teaching a ton and so I had a lot going on and I went into that one and I, I was like, okay, so I'm going to try and explain in this chapter why menstruation happens. And the first thing that I started, went to stress to people is that this is not a common behavior in mammals. Like most, most mammals, they don't, they don't change their uterine lining and most mammals don't until they get pregnant. Like it's in response to pregnancy. So hmm. they'll, so and then because of that, they don't really have as much to slough or get rid of on a regular basis, but humans and a few other select mammals, it's about 5% of all the mammals, they change their uterine linings in preparation for pregnancy. So like they're getting ready for being pregnant. And then, which means all the cells in that uterus, like that in that lining, they all undergo this dramatic cellular change that 
such that if they then don't get pregnant, that tissue has to just be gotten rid of. And that is menstruation. And so I kind of learned that. <laughs> I was going to say, let's just pause there for a second. I'm embarrassed to admit this, but like how many guys listening knew that, right? right I mean, right. I, I grown ass man, right. I know it happens. I know the approximate timeline in which it happens. Yeah. Aside from that, pretty much clueless. Just learn something yeah. new. Oh, totally. Why the hell would that happen? Like, Why would that happen? So then, so I wrote that in that chapter. So the, the, what made it really gnarly is that that process of the lining changing spontaneously is called spontaneous decidualization. And I saw that for the first time and I thought, good Lord, like how am I gonna, first I need to wrap my head around it and then, and then I have to figure out how to explain it in this book that I want you know, a- anybody to be able to read. And, and I got to that question you just asked and I said, it turns out the question is not like, why do women menstruate? Like the question is, why do they undergo that process? Why do they change that lining spontaneously? And, and then there are these, this, and this is what was so cool to me is I, I just learned so much in this chapter. There are these, there are effectively two leading ideas, two hypotheses for why women do that. The first one is that the human fetus just roots in to a woman almost deeper than any other mammal. So it gets in there like right next to the woman's blood vessels. It roots in so deep that it's called the, the degree of placentation is it's invasive placentation. Like the, the fetus just sort of really burrows into a woman when she's pregnant. And it allows the fetus to manipulate the woman's physiology. It secretes hormones to, to change how the woman treats the fetus. So and it, it can lead to conditions like gestational diabetes or preeclampsia. So there's this conflict. Like the fetus wants to effectively just suck the mother dry as much as possible for its own good. And the mother has to find this point where she's, you know, where, where she doesn't let the fetus just take too much of her to imperil her. And anyway, so this first idea is that by building up that lining before she gets pregnant, it's kind of like a little layer of defense against a really hyper-invasive fetus. That's, that's idea number one, which is like fantastically interesting, right? Yeah. And then the second idea, which is also another one that's really wild, is that for reasons not that well understood, humans just make really shoddy embryos. I read this paper that, that went through sort of the, the genetics of, of early embryos, and the, the, the number just blew my mind. Out of, out of 100 human embryos, 70 of them have some type of small genetic anomaly or, or you know, um, they're, they're off a little bit. There might be one cell that has one too many chromosomes or one cell that has one too few. Most of them are not perfect is the point. Now, many of them are able to kind of right the ship and go on to develop a perfectly normal, healthy kid. But we make really error-prone embryos for reasons that are not that well understood. And this is the really interesting part. If a woman's body, by undergoing this process of changing the uterine lining before pregnancy, it allows a woman's body to naturally screen for healthier embryos. And so she is able, so a woman's body will naturally abort a pregnancy that where the, where the embryos really chromosomally aberrant and and then support a healthy pregnancy. And they've shown that in women that, that whose cells don't decidualize to the same degree, that don't change to the same degree where this process is impaired, they're more likely to suffer a miscarriage deeper in the pregnancy um, than other women. And so wait, 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 yeah, It's really, it's really, wait, it's, wait. it's complex, heady, like, like tough stuff to wrap your head around, which is why it was such an interesting chapter to write. The last five minutes, I I have to tell you, we've been doing this podcast for 11 years. Like, this is why we do it. Now, we could talk about all the self-help stuff, mindset stuff that I love and like how to change your life. But really, it was like, how do I learn cool shit from people who actually did it? So this is one of those things. I'll never need to know it, but I want to know it, right? You're telling me, okay, they prepare this new lining yes. in case they get pregnant. And if they do it right, and if this new lining is functioning and proper, it can tell, is this embryo you're presenting me with a good one? And if it's functioning right, it will essentially not turn into a baby. So they'll just have their normal menstruation. You wouldn't even know. That's right. Um, Cause this is not like a miscarriage. That's correct. 
we're, we're talking in the earliest days of, you know, post-conception when things are just, you know, in that, that five, six, seven, eight day period where, where, where the cells are dividing rapidly and, and, yeah. and too many mistakes are being built into the system. And if the woman's cells have, have gone through this process that, that they normally do of decidualizing and changing, the body's able to tell that and get, all right, we're not going to, we're not going to take that one to term. And if that process is impaired, then the kid continues to develop. And then one of two things happen. You either end up with a miscarriage much later, you know, 10, 15, 20 weeks right. into the pregnancy, or you end up with um, a child that's carried to term that potentially has has serious chromosomal mishaps. Wow. Yeah. The for the whole back section of the book to me, because then the next the, the next chapter after that is all about fertility. And that's another one that I think we're still just beginning to understand the basics of it. And and you 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 know, you you talk to and so many couples seem to have fertility. Issues, issues and problems yeah. they have to overcome these days. And the science just is evolving at such a rapid pace. It's one thing I stress to anybody that sort of reads this book is I, I just want them to keep reading and stay on top of it because, because all these issues, the way that we repair ACLs, the way that we fix our teeth, the way that we deal with fertility issues, I feel like it's going to be completely different 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now than, than what we do now. We just interviewed an expert on essentially fertility. And they talked a lot about kind of the newer science. And of course, a lot of it was related to the chemicals and yeah. the plastics and the all that stuff. But just one of those things where, again, I remember at 20, I thought you just, right. you know, have a baby. Like I right. genuinely was like, it's really not that hard. Then by the time me and other people started having babies, you notice like, whoa, we, how is this so hard we probably should, to do it We right? probably should all have them at 20. The problem is that just, I mean, from a, from mm. a physical standpoint, we all just need to have our kids at 20. But from a yeah. m- mature emotional standpoint, none of us should have kids at 20. Right? Like, <laughs> Thank you. I mean, yes. I, wasn't even, like, yes. I wasn't even close to ready at that point. And that's the problem, right? Especially in the modern world, you, you know, you get into your career, you get into your life, you want to spend your 20s sort of, you know, doing, having fun and traveling and doing these things. And by the time you're finally like, all right, I'm in a place where let's do this. Then we're all, you know, 35. And then the body's like, whoa, whoa, (laughs) yeah, it's not going to be as easy as when you were 20. No, that's true. And it is one of those things that I took for granted. This is how it's supposed to work. I will say, as you were explaining it, you know what the, one of the number one things that was going through my mind was like, as a parent of young children, now I can't speak for women because I'm never going to give birth, but uh, as a man, I always looked at having kids as expanding family, providing purpose. But when you talk about it, it really sounds like an alien just making sure they survive and they'll do anything, including kill their host to come into the world. Like when you call it a fetus, and I know that's what it is, but it's like a fetus burrowing in (laughs) to change the hormones of its host in order to survive. I'm like, Oh my God, that's terrifying. But in reality, I think that's what it is. Yeah, it is. And, but of course it's all, you know, once it comes out, it, it, it needs to be loved and it needs to be taken care of and it, and it, it's benefited by being taken care of. So it has its moments when it's adorable, when it coos at you. And that's all, those are all the things that make it all worth it. Right. When it, all, yeah. the, all these things that, that bond you to it. But yeah, at the end of the day, they, I think the, the little kids have right from the word go, they have pretty selfish interests. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> thank God. I mean, I say this to them to this day, like, thank God you're cute because man, yeah. this has not been, what am I, not been the best time ever. One of my, <laughs> one of my best friends that he's, he's a biologist that used to work at the school. He says they, all the kids, they basically just come out like little criminals. And then you have a few, you know, they're, they're born as just little criminals. And then you have a few years where you get a chance to mold them into non-criminals, you know, yeah. and, and he's kind of right. Like I, I see some kids that aren't, you know, maybe getting the best parenting in the world. And at four or five years old, they're basically still just little criminals. And you have to, you have to, yeah. you have to work it out. And you have to work that inherently selfish DNA out of them, you know, so that they can, so they can function in a modern world. <laughs> I don't speak to the validity of this, but I did just hear Jordan Peterson talk about how by, I think it was age five, Uh, After age five, it's really hard to instill, I believe it was empathy in a human. It was really fascinating. He was talking about how men are physically aggressive, uh, naturally, boys, just males when they're born, 
females emotionally aggressive and it's the parent's job to kind of help them see the impact and the the empathy there and how for those that don't especially in social media emotional aggressiveness is the thing that's causing more pain today than perhaps physical did in the past again i can't speak to the validity of it but to your point that early stage setting setting the stage for the rest of their life being critical and it makes sense if you think about it evolutionarily it does make sense and it's it's why if you're doing the job right um you don't have enough time to work on your core you know because those, <laughs> those things take they take a long time like it's not something you can't just like sit the kid down for two minutes you know it's all by example and it's all you know on it's it's a daily process of of getting those lessons across and in that process we you know you you end up with a sore back because you leave everything else behind you know everybody listening that right there is what we call tying it in there a it bow yes, you know that right. <laughs> doesn't get any better Alex, I've really enjoyed it. So for those listening, and, and you'll hear it in the intro and all that, but the book is Evolution Gone Wrong, The Curious Reasons Why Our Bodies Work or Don't. And in my case, I don't know. I'm gonna, I, I'm looking at my gym, my home gym over there, my rowing machine, and I'm going to go get on Be it. Good for you. Perfect. Because I need to get these muscles in. I love it. Alex, I've really enjoyed it. Uh, for those listening, you know, we'll link to the book. I think it's a fascinating topic. What would you recommend? I mean, what, you know, if somebody's like, Hey, I want to learn about how my body works and I want to learn more from Alex, wh where should we go? What do you do, you know, to, to learn? What do you tell us what you got? I mean, I kind of can cheat cause I'm a, cause I'm a biologist. I, I spend a lot of, I spend a lot of time with primary lit and go right to the heavy stuff, but you know, there are, there are some really great authors that, that hit this blend of, of the hardcore science with, with readability. So like I said, I you know pick up first steps, read Jeremy De Silva's new book. I love Sam Keen's writing. He does, you know, one of the first books that got me going sort of on this path of sort of popular science writing was The Violinist's Thumb. Pick up books like that and, you know, read those two books. And once you've read those two, if you liked them, then get on my website, send me an email, and I will give you the name of three others to get you going. Because I have a list of, of just at the end of every one of my classes, I tell my books, I tell my students, all right, here's, it's summer now. Here, you don't have to do this, you know, I'm not, I'm not gonna, you don't get any points for it. Here are two fantastic pieces of fiction that you should read, and here are two fantastic pieces of nonfiction. And, and the good students, you know, they email me a couple months later, and they're like, all right, those were awesome, what else do you have? And, and off we go, so... Start with start with. I love it. Are are you writing still outside of the book? Do you write on your website or are you I'm, active on social so, or anything like that? Yeah. So I, my publishers were like, you know, I was never big into social media, and my publisher said, yeah. you know, this is something that you should. So I've started a Twitter. I have a Twitter account now. I'm up to 84 followers. So I've really I'm really blowing up. I've I've come up. I've coined this that. phrase. Instead of something going viral, I say it's gone fungal, like if it's the opposite of going viral. <laughs> so my account has definitely like gone that. fungal. So it's, it's just at Alex Bezaritas. So I'm, I'm putting stuff on there. Just I, I really pride myself on understanding the natural world and looking at things like yesterday in my, in my little teeny laundry room here yesterday, there was a tailless whip scorpion which oh. is just the coolest little arthropod. It's like they're totally harmless, but they're the most badass looking critters that you've ever seen. Hmm. Um, so I took it out of the laundry room and I took it outside and I got a good picture of it. And that's the kind of thing I put up on my Twitter account because I just like being able to identify tailless whip scorpions and let the world know that they're totally harmless. So don't squash one when you ever come across them in your life. So that's the kind of thing. I was that just I about to say, talking about evolution, what is the benefit of a scorpion with no stinger? I thought that was their whole point. Yeah, these guys, these guys just kind of cruise around in the dark of night and feed another little bug. So they just, they look really tough. And I think looking tough is a big part of their deal. Yes. Um, but they, in terms of, um, they're certainly not harmless to like other little teeny uh, invertebrates, but they're totally harmless to humans, but they're the toughest looking things on earth. So I'm going to, I'm going to get one someday to keep in my office just to, you know, just as, I love a, it. as a, as a talking point. So anyway, I. Just yeah, I just tell people to always keep reading, keep learning and, and doing those things. And, and it's a journey, right? <laughs> it is. Well, and we appreciate you sharing the knowledge because this stuff is fascinating. I mean, why not know a little bit more about the, uh, as I call them, the submarines we will inhabit for our entire life. So <laughs> like again, the book, Evolution Gone Wrong, The Curious Reasons Why Our Bodies Work or Don't. Alex, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks so much. I enjoyed the conversation. That was our interview with Alex Bezaritas. Really hope you enjoyed that one. And as a reminder, Alex's book, Evolution Gone Wrong, 
The curious reasons why our bodies work or don't can be found at your local bookstore. All right, let's quickly jump into the housekeeping items here. If you'd ever like to reach out to the show, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. And if you'd like to support the show, the easiest way to do so is head over to Patreon and become a monthly patron over there. That's at patreon.com slash smartpeoplepodcast. And of course, if you want to stay up to date with all things Smart People Podcast, just head over to the website, smartpeoplepodcast.com and sign up for the newsletter. Well, that's it for us this week. Make sure you stay tuned because we've got a lot of great interviews coming up and we'll see you all next episode. Next episode.